This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The world seems full of complex problems. They are sometimes called wicked problems because it's hard to understand the root cause and hard to truly solve them. My guest today is Dr. Kenari Webb, founder of the nonprofit Health and Harmony. She is someone who has tackled one of the most complex problems, and I'm going to let her tell you more about her story. I want to say, though, that she's an exemplar of innovative systemic thinking, as well as of the determination it takes to make a difference on the ground. I think that her journey has lessons for all of us who wrestle with the thorny social issues and who work to lead for a greater good. It is also captured in her fascinating new book, Guardians of the Trees, A Journey of Hope Through Healing the Planet. Canary Webb, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, it's an honor to be here and I'm delighted. Well, thank you. It really is it's to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. Now, I, I'm not going to do your story justice, so if I could ask you to briefly take us on your path from budding orangutan researcher to medical doctor to NGO founder. Well, so I first went to Indonesia to study orangutans when I was an undergraduate, and I fell in love with the rainforest. I mean, just one of the most exquisite and amazing places on the planet. But sadly, I could hear the chainsaws in the distance, and it just broke my heart. And I thought, why are these people cutting down the lungs of the earth? Don't they understand how important this forest is for the health of the whole planet? Isn't them, they know it's like the home to the orangutans and don't they know that it's important for the well-being of the communities that surround the forest? Turns out, of course, these communities knew that way better than I would ever know it. But what was happening was that they were in a horrible catch-22. They were actually often logging to pay for healthcare. One man I know cut down 60 giant rainforest trees to pay for a C-section. This year, I actually had a C-section. And I know that my family would have done whatever it took to get that for me so that I wouldn't die and my child wouldn't die. But, you know, if you have, if you're a subsistence farmer, and you just don't have that much access to extra resources, one medical emergency, which can cause an enti- cost an entire year's income, can just devastate you. So what often ends up happening is people end up in debt or they log to pay for healthcare. And I can hardly blame people for that. But the reason that they have so few resources, of course, is because of a long history of colonialism. And I realized that I had so many privileges in life. I was raised in the United States. I came from a relatively poor family, but I had so many opportunities. And I figure when you get that lucky, you have a responsibility to share. But for me, it would always be about listening to communities because I'm not the expert. No matter how much education I have, I would never know the intimate interconnectedness that these communities understand so well. And so we do this process, what I call radical listening, where we ask the communities what the solutions are. 
And, and that's what the nonprofit I founded, Health and Harmony, it's based on that principle. And we now work around the world doing that and have the honor and privilege to support rainforest communities in implementing their solutions. Now, so, I, I think that insight around radical listening and, and having communities voice potential solutions to problems and just even to frame the problem itself uh, is so important. It's so important for our listeners to grasp because while you were you were working in the rainforest, I think it's, it's a, it would seem to be a process that would be equally applicable if you're looking at unhoused individuals or the opioid crisis or, yes. or other tra- challenging problems. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, I 100% agree with that. The people who are directly experiencing a problem, who know every intimate detail of it, are the ones who know the best solutions for how to solve it. And it's just almost guaranteed to fail when outside experts, quote unquote, come in and say, oh, I know how to fix this problem. It almost never works. Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a real challenge and one that, that sadly gets demonstrated over and over again is that the quote unquote experts come in from uh, the developed world or from fancy universities like Harvard and like, we're here with, we're here with the answer. Yeah. Um, and then it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, you know, I think it's all an extension of racism, colonialism, you know, elitism, classism. It's, it's this idea that like top-down solutions somehow are, are better solutions when usually they don't work at all, right? <laughs> but bottom-up solutions where communities determine what the right solutions are can be dramatically effective and very, very quick because they understand all the intersectional solutions, right? How this thing is related to that. And in, for example, around Gunung National Park where we first worked, um, we asked communities, what would you need as a thank you from the world community since your guardians are this incredibly precious resource that's valuable to the whole world? What would you need so you can protect it and so that you can thrive? And what they said was, we need access to high quality, affordable healthcare, and we need training in organic farming. Like as an outsider, I looked at these communities and I could, all I could see were problems. For example, school, right? They, you know, the kids weren't, many and many of the children were not going to school. But when we did exactly what the community said and only those things, access to high quality, affordable healthcare, so people could pay for their healthcare with seedlings, they could um, get discounts from the world community for protecting forests and very, very high quality care, you know, provided by Indonesians, of course, which 100% of the staff in our program there are Indonesians, but receiving extra training if they needed it. And then the organic farming training. But you know what, things like education, they just followed course, 40% more for going to school after 10 years. So it's like, these were the critical fulcrums of change and they began to make everything else get better. We also had a 67% drop in infant mortality, 90% drop in logging households, and the rainforest was growing back. 52,000 acres of rainforest grew back. And the amount of forest that was protected was actually worth $65 million worth of carbon. So these communities are giving an incredible gift to the world. And I think it's appropriate for the world to give them gifts back. Well, I think people should know, I mean, I think when you and I first spoke, which was quite some time ago, I was very impressed that 
when you heard about this problem of affordable health care, you didn't just go about trying to find affordable, high quality health care. You went back and became a doctor to fully understand all that. So <laughs> your commitment well, yeah. has been rather extraordinary. <laughs> but as I listen to this journey you're talking about and, and the way you've engaged with communities, I think of my colleague, uh, Brian Spisak, who's one of our, our researchers at the MPLI who works out of the Netherlands. And he always talks about, you know, the, the, that we so often see a surface problem and we go to a surface solution and that usually doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was a surface yeah. problem of deforestation. And then you had the wisdom to say, okay, what's the root cause of that? And then what's the root solution that can be applied to the, the surface, uh, surface solutions to actually fix what you started out to fix? So yeah. how did you learn to think that deeply and, and that systemically? I didn't. The rainforest <laughs> communities did. They taught me, right? You know, what can I say? Oh, oh. I'm, I'm always going to be an outsider in those communities, right? So my job is to listen, you know, but I talk to other conservation organizations and they say exactly like you were pointing out, right? Like they say, oh no, we, we do conservation. We don't do healthcare. <laughs> well, then you probably don't do competition, right? Because if you can't address the reasons why people are logging, well then, or why they're poaching, right? Then you're not really addressing the problem. Or yeah. they're penalizing people who already have few choices and who already had resources stolen from them. That's just the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, as you, as you speak there, I'm, I'm thinking that we're making the mistake of, of viewing the problem as we see it, not as the community see it. Yes. And you know, one of, the, one of the tools we teach at the MPLI is something called the cone of the cube, which our listeners will have heard about before, but basically it's imagining a cone inside of a, uh, a wooden cube. And if you drill a hole in the side of it, you'll look in and you'll see a triangle. And if you grew if you drill a hole in the top and look in, you'll see a circle, mm -hmm. but what's in there is neither a triangle nor a circle. It's mm -hmm. a cone. And, and so it seems to me that, you know, that you, what you're talking about is a great example of that, of you had a perspective on this. The local communities had a perspective on this. And what you had to do was have the humility to come in and listen and then be able to go. You did some things they couldn't do on their own. I, mean, I think you, you were able to catalyze some things from outside. Again, when you said, what could, what could we bring you that would actually help solve your problem? And then you said about doing that. This is a remarkable example of the power of, of integrating different perspectives so you fully understand what you're working with. It opens up a new range of potential solutions and it actually gets you this got you to closer to where you wanted to be originally than it would have been if you'd spent your entire life sitting there trying to conserve rainforest the old-fashioned way. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that these communities know what the solutions are, but they also know they can't implement them, right? If they could implement them, they would have already done so. This brings me back to something people often say. They say, oh, you're empowering communities. I hate that term because... It suggests I have power and I'm somehow giving it to them, right? Oh no, they have agency, they have power. They have just few resources to be able to enact the solutions that they know, right? And I have to say, I see that in the United States as well, right? Like when I think about what the solutions are for me to be able to reduce carbon emissions, there are things that I can't really do, right? <laughs> there are things that I would need help to have implemented in my communities, right? Like great biking lanes, like, you know, um, better public transportation, things like that, that are not possible for me to do individually. And it's the same for these communities, right? It's not 
really necessarily a lack of money on an individual basis. It's a lack of access to the resources and the, you know, sometimes it's, you know, capacity to work with the government or sometimes it's ability to bring in outside knowledge. Um, like the communities wanted um, training in organic farming because the traditional method of farming there was slash and burn. But the next door island of Java has a many thousand year tradition of sustainable agriculture. And so we could bring over these incredible experts just from the next door island who could then train these communities. And that has, was wildly successful. So it's not necessarily something complicated and difficult, but it's just something that isn't available locally. Well, and the other thing that comes to mind as you, as you talk about this is, is the notion of trust and how you yeah. had to trust, you had to trust the, the knowledge of the community, you had to trust the intentions and purpose of the community, um, you had to trust their traditions. And I think that so often, and I, you're right, it happens domestically as well as internationally. So whether it's FEMA coming in after a disaster or internationally, it's you know, any one of the international aid agencies come in. A lot of times, everything they, they're going to do is so wrapped up in protocol and procedure and red tape and forms that it's really, a, it, you can see it's, it's actually built on mistrust. Yes. Like we don't trust these people, so we have to make sure we account for everything and it goes our way. And I think what you're talking about is the exact opposite. Is like, we have to trust these people and we're going to give them what they've asked for and then watch what happens. And, and what you've shown is that it can deliver remarkable results. And I have to say that is, it was hard for me. Really have that trust, right? Okay, we're doing this. Even if I can't see why, we're going to do it anyway. And <laughs> And boy, you know, was that the right thing to do? But when I teach radical listening, I have to say that is the problem that we run up against the most. But what if they're wrong? What if ask for something we don't want to give them? What if, you know, just all these uh, fears about actually just truly trusting the communities. One group that we worked with in, uh, in, in Brazil, um, when we said we wanted to do radical listening, was, oh, no, 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 you can't do that here. If we ask communities what they want, everyone is going to add, say that they want a million dollars in their pocket, right? So we, there's no way we can ask them. And I was like, well, I think they're going to do that. You know, that hasn't been my experience anywhere else in the world. And they're like, no, 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 no these are Brazilians. They'll definitely ask for money. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know what? They didn't. They asked for completely reasonable things that were absolutely essential, like evacuations during COVID for these very, very remote communities. They asked for, you know, four visits by a group of doctors and a doctor, dentist, and a nurse four times a year, right? Like that is just not that much. And it's such a small thank you from the world for these communities for protecting enormous tracts of rainforest. So yes, I just, I fully believe we just have to trust communities. And that's hard to do, but man, is it the right thing to do? Yeah, it, it really is hard. I think it goes against the grain of, of so, many, so many of the approaches we see. And, it, and there's a myriad of reasons for that, his, historical and regulations written by lawyers and all kinds of other things that are just a, unfortunately a fact of, of organizational life these but i think but i think what you're showing i think why i wanted to have you on the show was the, uh to show the possibility of doing it differently of actually say coming in listening trusting the community actually you know, this is what stakeholder engagement actually is and it's a fancy term for let's sit down and listen and talk to each other uh 
we that we so rarely do. But you're right; nobody understands these communities better than the people who live in them. And what you're, and I love your story about Brazil because it does show that people know what they need, and it isn't necessarily something outrageous or, or, or you know expensive. And they don't expect you to show up with fancy clothes and fancy cars for everybody. Those are some basic things they need to make their community work and make it better. And with those things, you know, they feel honored and respected by the world community, and and in a way that they should be, and delighted to give back a gift of protecting forest, right? It is mutual gift giving. And I believe it's really, if we don't do this, if we do not put rainforest communities in the driver's seat, as, as this amazing indigenous woman I know, Hindu Ibrahim puts it, we are not going to survive as a human species. The time for colonialism and a, you know, this just horrible top down, it's is over. It's it's going to be the end of humanity if we do not reverse course and really truly honor local and indigenous wisdom and support these communities which are protecting the health of the whole planet. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it, it, this is just as relevant for those those communities in urban areas, be it in, in the U.S. or Brazil or Germany or China, wherever it happens to be. It's We all have something to give to the solution of a thriving planet. And local people who are closest to the challenges um, are the ones who battle the solutions. You mentioned earlier in passing that when you, you said when you teach radical listening, how do you teach radical listening? Can you give us the three-minute mini course of how you do that? <laughs> well, you know, it is I'm sure really, it's a much longer process than that, but I it just was a, a primer, as it were. Yeah, it is remarkably difficult, actually, I have found to teach. It's, it's like the most basic skill you could possibly have, and we all use it every day, you know, a thousand times a day. And yet, it's never taught. And I break it down into these various parts about like, what does it mean to be a good receiver? How do you help the person you're listening to really know that they're being listened to? How do you reflect back keywords? How do you handle emotions when strong emotions arise and your own mirror neurons go off? How do you um, summarize what you're hearing? And then those are all just listening to an individual. How do you then do that in a group? Right. So that's a, that's what we work on. We actually have a training course that we offer. Uh, we do online webinars. You can check us out and see when the next one is, which I think is actually next week. Um, it's at radicallistening.org. So check us out. That's great. I'm, I'm happy to give a shameless plug for that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you do it that way, because I think that, you know, I've, I've seen numerous, uh, numerous ways of engaging communities and it's always good i think there, there is sort of a core set of principles that that unites them and that you are you are least listening deeply you are arriving humble in spirit tough tough on people tough on ideas and easy on people and creating really the environment for dialogue and uh, and that's something that i think we you know again some of these problems that we look at we wrestle with over and over again that's what is needed here is this bottom-up engagement, but that can be challenging because that challenges the, the existing uh, power structure yeah. and it challenges the, the, the existing mindset and the way a lot of folks are trained to, to try and come in and solve problems, which is I'm, I'm, I'm the expert, I'm here to help. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's dangerous and expensive when that happens. We always begin our training with actually an exercise from Joanna Macy on, on what she calls interbeing, this sense of that all of our well-beings are intertwined. And 
kindness and compassion and, and that because those are the fundamental underlying pieces of listening without respect and love you you can't really listen and that's just that's just truth that's wonderful well it, the subtitle of your book is a journey of hope through healing the planet so i i know that the answer your answer to my final question which is the question i i ask of all my guests is going to be particularly interesting and that is what gives you hope it is hard to have hope at this time we are looking at the end of civilization you know when i when i think about my son who was just born this year that we could go to at the current trajectory we could go to three degrees Celsius by the end of the century when he's 80. That's terrifying. And it is hard to find hope in that. But I do have hope. And the reason that I have hope and why I did the radical act of having a child at this time is because I believe that if we just understand our interbeing, if we truly listen to each other, and we honor and respect local knowledge, we can solve these problems and we can solve them quickly. It just takes like a, a shift in mindset. But when that shift happens, magic occurs. And, and I, you know, I'd love for you all to read my book and see how profound that magic was in the communities where we've had the incredible privilege to work. But also, you know, just imagine whatever tough challenge you're facing, how these same principles could be applied. And I, I know that every single one of us has a piece of puzzle and I know that we can do it if we do it together. So, so I'm gonna ask you one, one last, last question, given what you just said, yeah. uh, which is, you know, we just had a big global climate, climate summit uh, COP26 in Glasgow, uh, that people are going to be re regathering in, in Egypt next year. So given what you've yeah. done, if you could sit those leaders down, or if you could sit the leaders down in your community, you're out in the San Francisco area, I know, uh, facing a lot of problems, what are the one or two or three things you would say, folks, this is what we've got to do to move forward? What advice would you give them concretely to, to step forward? Yeah, the, we actually really have to put indigenous and local communities in the driver's seat right now at this stage. We have to, when we, in thinking about the biggest challenge that faces our planet right now, which is climate change, racism, colonialism, and, and environmentalism are inextricably intertwined. It is no, it's, it's totally clear that if you look at communities where the worst pollution is happening, they're communities of color, right? We must address these things together and we have to do it with love and respect and do radical listening. We have to ask communities what the solutions are and then trust enough and be radical enough to just implement them. And when we do that, change could happen very, very fast. That's good. And that gives me hope. Dr. Canary Webb, founder of Health and Harmony and author of the really fabulous book, Guardians of the Trees, A Journey of Hope Through Healing the Planet. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you.
This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.